welcome to the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Marcus O'Hishkeen. And I'm Stephanie Lee Thanks for joining us in these troubling times. We hope you're looking after yourselves and each other, staying at home and invoking the deities of Irish mythology when you're washing your hands. And you could say that these times do have kind of mythic uh, qualities. You know, there's an otherworldliness out there in the streets and sure I heard that with the reduction in pollution, you can actually see the two of Daydanon returning. But anyway, um, Steffi, what, what have we got on the agenda for this week? Now, we mentioned the Dinshankas last week. That's a name given to the genre of writing relating to place names and their meaning. So very often we see places in Ireland take their names from the legends and the mythological characters that are believed to have created them. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the acts of defiance by divine feminine figures that led to the creation of rivers and hills, mountains and valleys. And we'll be asking, was it these acts of creation that led to their divinity? Or was it their divinity that led to these acts of creation? Or did they mostly come to sticky ends because they messed with powers that they shouldn't have? So one such individual is the goddess Bowen. Now she gives her name to the river Boyne and she's going to be the main focus of our show today. Now, there are two poems concerning her in the Metrical Dinshankas. Um, They have significant differences, but the core story about how the Boyne is formed is pretty much the same. Now, we'll get to these differences later on in the show, but first of all, Steffi is going to read our version of the Boyne Dinshankas. In the north of County Kildare, Not far from the constant drone of the M4 motorway is a sleepy little village called Carberry. It's a pretty place, though there's not much to it. A church, a pub, a garage, houses with hanging baskets. An older lady and her ginger cat in their garden. All the usual things that you'd expect to find in a village in rural Ireland. On your average weekday, thousands of commuters pass by on the road on their way to Dublin to work. Stuck in traffic, nothing to see but the monotony of tarmac and cars. But little do they know if they took the next exit, just down the road, there's something far more exotic, something otherworldly. Maybe they could find it. You see, just outside Carberry, there's a hill, and somewhere on that hill, there's a door. And if you find that door, if you can open it, though no known mortal has done before, But if you could, and you step through, you would find yourself in the other world. You would find yourself where once stood an ancient goddess. Don't be fooled by her beauty or long flowing hair looking out at the world from sky-coloured eyes. For it was Bowen who defied the wishes of a man and changed the land around her forever. For it was Bowen whose greatest, most defiant act called forth an eruption of water so violent that it created the River Boyne. Now this Bowen was a goddess to us, but there in the she, the other world beneath the ground, she was no more remarkable than any other being of that place. For in that place, everyone was remarkable and magic coursed through the fabric of space. And in this particular she mound, there was a well, and Bowen desired its power. Now this well, the well of Sagus, 
was remarkable. For around the well grew nine trees of hazel, whose nuts, when ripened, fell into it. And when they fell, those nuts were eaten by nine of the finest salmon that were ever seen. Now, as you might imagine, that well was a place where you could go to seek inspiration because the nuts from the hazels and the salmon who dwelled there were both seed and store of all wisdom, of all knowledge, of all insight into everything great and good in the world. But that was not all that could be found in the well. Within it lurked something more sinister, more menacing. Along with all that was good lay every kind of mysterious evil. And if you approached the well the wrong way, you might unleash that evil not only upon yourself, but you could loose it upon the whole world. Nacton, her husband, had forbid her from going to the well. But Bowen was not deterred. Though she had heard the tales that no one could look directly into the well or their eyes would burst forth from their head and explode, she would have that well. She would have its power and be filled with its wisdom. Why shouldn't she? But guarding the well were three cupbearers, and none could approach it but them. For it is cupbearers who are considered the most trustworthy. They are the ones relied upon to serve drinks free from poison to the gods they serve. Flesk, Lamb, and Lewin were the names of the cupbearers of the Sagas Well. Only through them could you access its powers. Only through them and their master, the powerful druid Nocton, Bowen's husband. Bowen didn't fear the well, and one day she approached it. She approached it in her finest white gown, bright as stars shimmering in the night sky. She strode towards it, her faithful hound Davalus by her side, and reciting a spell, she walked around it. Three times she walked around it, without caution, widdershins, tuhul, anti-clockwise. Bowen walked against the sun. As she finished her incantation, she looked down and the ground began to shake. The nuts of the hazel trees fell like hail into the well and the salmon gorged, turning from silver to pink to red and the water bubbled, gushed, it rose to the top, erupted and for one fraction of a moment, everything that had ever existed or ever would come to exist all knowledge, all wisdom, all good, all evil, the beginning, the middle, the end, it was all known to Bowen. As she saw her own fate, Bowen turned to run, but immediately she realised that this action was the catalyst for the fate she had just seen, and the gushing white water rapids followed her at every turn. No matter how fast she tried to move, she couldn't outrun the water that was surging towards her, hunting her. The first wave that struck her took her left leg clean off in one piece, and the second took her eye. And by the time the third wave severed her hand, the wall of the she, the mound within which she lived, gave way to the surging water. And Bowen and her dog Dabla, her severed limbs and the waters of the other world exploded into the material realm. From the she to the sea, the frothing white waves sent Bowen crashing against rock and her body carved out first a river channel and a valley. And part of her crashed into the sky creating a river above that mirrored the one below. Above, a river of stars. Balak Nabo Finya, 
Way of the White Cow, the Milky Way, below the River Boyne, providing sustenance to Bowen's people. From the bogland of North Kildare she flows through the coveted fertile lands of Meath to Baltray in Louth where she meets Mananan, Lord of the Sea. And to this day, when the sun shines and the sky is clear, if you stand at Baltray on the northern shore of the Boyne and you strain your eyes to the east, you might, if you try really hard, you might still see Davila. Bones, little dog, paddling in the distance. So that's the basic story um, of Bowen and how the Bowen was created with a bit of modern poetic license. So, but every retelling, you know, has a bit of, bit added, a bit taken away. And in the actual version, manuscript versions that we have, there are, there, the two of them are quite different. So, one of the one of the things that's very common in mythologies is that you get a number of different versions of the same story and there's often overlaps and crossovers and local twists depending on where you read them or where they're told to you and it's believed that these poems were passed down orally for centuries so there's probably like you know tens if not hundreds of versions out there that never made it to the page so our version uh that's the one that we've just retold is closer to the first Bowen poem than the second. And, and the first has a list of names um, for Bowen that adds some subtly uh, biblically influenced material. So the names of Bowen given in, we'll call it Bowen 1 for the purposes of this, are? So you have Sagus or Shagus, which is fairly self-explanatory. If you've just listened to the story, it's the name of the well. Then you have the arm and the leg of Nuda's wife which um, I think creates some confusion because obviously she's Necton's wife here um, Nuda in some places is portrayed as Necton's father I think that might be a later addition but anyway yeah I think they probably refer to geographical features really these um, and also there's the great silver yoke and it's not a reference to ancient raves in Newgrange <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh god. It would be a bit cramped in there, but I hear the, the acoustics are really good. <laughs> um, we also have um some other names. So we've got the White Marrow of Phalamid, Stormy Wave, River of the White Hazel, Banna, Roof of the Ocean, Lunnan, Torrent, Severn, Tiber, Jordan, Jordan uh Tigris. And the Euphrates. Yeah. Um, so the last three of these are mentioned in the Bible while the Tiber runs through Rome, which of course is very important in Catholicism. Now it's likely that these weren't included in the actual original versions and the jury is still out on, on the Severn inclusion, but the others were probably there. Um, but the second in Shanka's poem concerning Bowen, however, puts a very different spin on the tale. So in this version, in the second, Bowen goes to the well to wash away the guilt she has acquired from, uh, let's call it an, an indiscretion. Uh, so this version is a crossover uh, with the first part of the great saga of the wooing of Etain. In this saga, Bowen is married to Elkmer, who lives at Sheen Broga. Um, this is commonly believed to be Newgrange. So she's not actually married to Necton in the actual saga version. 
Um, so then there's the doctor, which is, who is the chief of the gods, and he really fancies Bone, and he sends El- Elkmar, who is obviously under his um, patronage, off on a fool's errand so he can go to their she and seduce Bone. So Bowen, as it turns out, uh, fancies the Dagda and they hook up and Bowen gets pregnant, um, which is awkward. Uh, so the Dagda, being the all-powerful god that he is, makes it appear that nine months have passed in one day so that Elkmar doesn't notice that Bowen has conceived, born and given birth to Angus in, so, in one day. So there's no uh, hopping out the window with his trousers under his arm for the Dagda there? No. <laughs> <laughs> He is the supreme father, you know. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, so in that second poem, it's this guilt, um, the guilt from this act that she goes to wash away at the well, though this this, um, washing um, does not occur in the actual saga of the wound of Retain. Um, Anyway. Uh, Yeah, so this act of washing away the guilt of a sexual act after childbirth is it's actually quite reminiscent of purification rituals that are held in several of the Abrahamic religions. Um, so in Roman Catholicism, we have a ritual known as churching, and that had to be carried out, said it was a washing ritual, um, and had to be carried out before a woman who had given birth uh, recently could receive the holy sacraments again. Um, and the second poem also has some very on-the-nose kind of Christian lines, so I think you're going to read it. So the first one is a direct mention of Christ himself. It's um, Bowen, a blessing on the stream. Did Christ fair or form ordain? And obviously you can see he's um, Christ given his permission to Bowen to go ahead and do all of this. And then you have this piece that um, may require a wee bit of deciphering. It goes, God's mercy was shown on left Kund by that council, so that it escaped the swift night of gloom unto thee, O generous Mel Shacklin. So that reference actually places the writing of this um, version of the Bowen tale somewhere, I think, in the early to mid 12th century. And what we're seeing here is Mel Shacklin was one of the kings of the O'Neill dynasty, and he succeeded, he actually preceded Brian Beru is High King of Ireland and succeeded him after the Battle of Clontarf. And um, Lethcund is like a name for the northern half of Ireland. So that's a little bit, little bit of praise for um, the O'Neill dynasty and Mel Shocklin himself from the poet. What part of which of the Bone Dinshankis poems do you prefer, Steffi? Uh, it's a tough, um, it's a tough one, but I think I would have to go for Bone One, uh, mainly because it doesn't have the shame element to it. You know, Bone's just heading up to the well because this is the well that contains all of the knowledge in the world, and and she wants it, and that's just it sits better with me than this idea that Bowen has done something wrong, you know, she's gone off and she's had this, you know, indiscreet, indis- indiscreet illicit affair with the Dagda, so she needs to wash away her sins. And like in Bowen 1, she's heading up to the well and she's going to challenge the authority 
of the guardians and her husband and she's saying you know I, I, I'm not going to pay any respect to the power of this and the negative things I've been told um, I'm not going to pay any heed to these authoritarian cup bearers you know, just get out of my way and hit the road and you know she makes no apology um, and, and she, there's no plea to the well as it you know rushes up and sweeps her away I think we should um, maybe, you know, um, withhold judgment on the cupbearers because we don't know much about these lads. So maybe maybe um, maybe Necton has a bit of a, a bit of a spell on them to to make them comply. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, that, that's a fair point. Um, you know, their names are given, so we can, you know, we can we can go and look and see. You know, are they mentioned anywhere else, or do they do anything? But the fact is, in Bowen 1, their role is to prevent access to the well. Uh, their, their role is to ensure that the woman in this story does not have access to all of the knowledge in the world. Now, you know, you could, you could look at it and say, well, you know, is this, is there a moral tale in here? Is it, you know... You don't know what the what the, the person who put it on the page was thinking when they were writing it down and their interpretation of course could have been well you know if a woman uh, objects to the powers or if a woman challenges male authority she's going to end up um, splashed all across the landscape like creating this amazing fertile <laughs> land for a whole community of people to live on yeah yeah how but awful how awful However, um, you know, there's also I think that the the story in from the wooing of Etain from that that's wedged into the second one. I feel like it doesn't really belong, and I think the mention of that Mel Shackness character at the end gives the game away. I think there's a bit of, you know, um, kind of political bootlicking going on on the part of the the poet that wrote wrote it down because. You know the the women of attain itself, um, as we'll come to eventually. There, there's a huge amount of, you know, underlying kind of context to the story about the the merging of the kingdoms of Brega and Mead, and I, I I think that this is because that that story is has a connection to the O'Neill dynasty that uh, possibly this um. This poet who wrote Bowen to was restructuring it as some sort of tribute to the ruling dynasty of the time. Do you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think there's you know Shakespeare did that a lot. You know, uh, um, Macbeth. Macbeth was just written as kind of a tribute to the new Stuart dynasty who came in to replace the, the Tudors. You know, and they, there was this kind of. Um, lineage this genealogy going all the way back to Duncan who obviously spoiler alert if you've not seen or read Macbeth you know Duncan is the the lad who or is it Malcolm I can't remember it was anyway was it Duncan or Malcolm whichever of them it was it was leaving cert the last time I looked at this but uh it's not today no it's not no (laughs) (laughs) Uh, burn but uh yeah so they're you know and but that's what Shakespeare had intended to, to to be. Here's the new dynasty. I'm going to write a story to make them think I'm a great fella altogether. And maybe 
that's what this character who wrote Bowen 2 was thinking as well. Um, one of the things I do think is interesting about this story, though, is how uh, Bowen moves from being this kind of pretty average if you can describe the beings of the she as being average but you know because they're all magical beings like everyone down there has some some gift it's like you know it's it's like the marvel universe you know everyone's got a special thing they're doing um but bowen transcends her place to the point where you know she's now you know she goes from this very ordinary goddess to being you know this like the major uh goddess where she's having an affair with the dogda you know these are big these are big players in Irish mythology if you can describe them as that um you know we don't have much knowledge about Bowen prior to this um but we know that she's obviously of some importance in the, in the kind of in the the universe of, of goddesses because you know she has this very powerful husband and, and she has a very powerful lover and then this event happens where she goes to the well she's like cupbearers get out of my way and um you know she she ends up having this very enormous status in her own right so you know we ask if it's this act of defiance that consolidates her divinity and makes her you know this bigger character in irish mythology or is it the fact that she's this very divine being in the first place the thing that drives her towards the well to say to the cupbearers you know get out of my way i'm gonna have this knowledge whether you like it or not you silly man. Um, that's that's in Bowen three, my version. Um, but no, but you know she challenges the powers of the well and the waters. They burst out. They disfigure her and sweep her out to sea. And it's a pretty violent end. Um, I guess. But I suppose you would have to ask: Is that an end really? Because she becomes part of this this world. Because through the act of defiance of her going to the well in the first place, the waters of the other world burst out and create the physical world that we have today and in this case the river Boyne is created and the fertile valley and plain and, and that becomes the cradle of, of very advanced civilization but this is it's not just a thing that Bowen creates a river and a valley it's she creates the Milky Way like that's a pretty huge thing in mythology um, so this act of destruction it's not just about violence and, and destruction and, and the and an end to things. It's a creative act. And as a result, the river is actually named after her. One of the things that often frustrates me researching for this podcast is how difficult it is to construct a, um, a timeline, to construct a um, chronology of Irish mythology. And, you know, if we were to... I know Lady Gregory made an attempt at a chronology in her um, two famous works, Gods and Fighting Men, and in um, her version of the Ulster Cycle. However, she kind of leaves out a lot of these Dinshankas things. If I was to construct a chronology of Irish mythology, I might start with Bowen and the creation of, what well, is essentially the creation of the physical world out of the other world. Yeah. Bowen creates this physical world. Um, she's, you know, she's a creator goddess. She's a river goddess, and the river she creates brings fertility to the land. But she's also the, you know, she's she's really the personification of this river, indicating that she's part of an animist tradition. Really, now animism 
is uh, it's it's a system of beliefs that attributes uh, a spiritual essence or a consciousness to phenomena that that are usually seen as as mere objects and it makes the inanimate animate i suppose yeah so our ancestors we believe were animists and you can see this in the way they revered trees and wells and rivers and you know modern kind of neo-pagans kind of take up that and you know the the tree symbolism is is huge um so but their attribution of spirit to objects didn't begin and end and end on the land they walked it also applied to the skies and we know from archaeological evidence that these people were keen astronomers going all the way back to the to the stone age to the neolithic um and you know, in more recent times, you often see Bowen depicted in front of Newgrange, which is synonymous itself with the winter sol- solstice and the huge, the, the great feats of astronomy that were required to construct that. Yeah, now, it, it is important to say that we actually don't know what our ancestors believed uh, for definite, but later animistic texts from elsewhere have this idea that the sky and the land are actually reflections of each other. So we see uh, there's a document called the Emerald Tablet. And this was part of something that was called the Hermetica, um, an ancient Egyptian Greek wisdom text and was probably written between the the 6th and 8th century CE in Arabic. And this contains the lines. This is from a translation uh, by Isaac Newton, no less, Jack of all trades. Uh, But in it, he says, uh, "'Tis true without lying, certain and most true, that which is below is like that which is above and that which is above is like that which is below to do the miracles of only one thing and as all things have been and arose from one by the mediation of one so all things have their birth from this one thing by adaptation so as above so below that's the kind of the gist of what he was saying yeah and you know the milky way or at least a part of our galaxy we can see in the sky which is basically i think one of the spiral arms of course you can't see much of it these days with all the light pollution but you know um that has been historically known in irish as balak nabo finia um or the way of the white cow and it was considered by you know we believe considered by the ancients to be a reflection of the river Boyne, or mainly the ancients in the area around the river Boyne. Um, as the name Bowen itself means white cow. And this po- points to her role as a maternal figure and f- fertility goddess. So she gives life to the land and the cow symbolism, of course, is common throughout uh, Indo-European mythology. We see this in a few other places. Um, in Norse mythology, we have Althumbla, um, who is the primordial cow who nourishes the first frost giant with her milk while licking away salty rock to reveal Buri, who's the, the progenitor of the gods. Um, and then in India, in, in some mythology, we see a character called uh, Komandinu, uh, who is a mother goddess represented on earth by all cows. And many people will be aware of the the nature of or how sacred cows are held in Hinduism today. Um, Hathor is an ancient Egyptian cow goddess who was believed to have been prominent from around four thousand years ago. Uh, but there are older ca- carvings of of bovine divinities going right back to around the time 
the the great neolithic culture in ireland was at its height the, what i find really interesting about hathor you know the the connection um is that she's also a sky goddess so the ancient uh, the ancient egyptians believed that the sky was a body of water from which the sun was born at the beginning of time now interestingly hathor is supposed to give birth to the sun god at the dawn of every day which ties in maybe with the maybe and maybe coincidentally with the tale of Bowen's pregnancy with Angus and the young god's subsequent birth appearing to happen in a single day. Um, and, and maybe it isn't a coincidence, um, although just to come back on that, you know, the thing about happening every single day, that sounds very tiring and excruciating <laughs> and I feel like maybe these were male authors who <laughs> wrote these, but anyway. Actually, no, she's a goddess, like. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Take nothing out of her, childbirth. Yeah. <laughs> coffee childbirth yeah. you know as you do on a daily basis um yeah but uh interestingly maybe um uh maybe maybe it isn't a coincidence maybe this is a myth that traveled across seas and continents as our ancestors migrated before culture and, and language diverged um there there was also an ancient goddess in gaul named demona who was a cow goddess uh demona or damina i'm not sure uh but she was a cow goddess and is associated with hot springs at a place called bourbon le bain in eastern France. So also one of the earliest recorded creation myths, um, and this one comes from Babylon Babylonian lore, concerns a goddess forming the universe, and her name was Tiamat. Um, so she, she's sometimes depicted as a dragon, but in the myth, um, Tiamat is slain by Marduk, who scatters her body, and it's Tiamat's scattered remains that become the known universe. Known universe. So according to um, Babylonian myth, we are now sitting inside the remains of Tiamat recording a podcast. That's really interesting. Also, I feel like Marduk sounds like a cat's name. Um, <laughs> it would make a good cat's name. So... Despite a millennium and a half of Christianity in Ireland, Bowen is still remembered today, uh, quite fondly, I would say, in localities adjacent to the Boyne. There's a distillery that bears her name just outside Drogheda. Uh, and during the two Flachyol and the Heron that took place in Drogheda in um, 2018 and 2019, uh, she appeared in a lot of street art, um, and, and a lot of that's on Instagram. Uh, there are a few little girls around the locality, who, who bear the name Bowen and her endurance probably could be attributed to the role the river that bears her name plays in our history. Um, and, it, and it turns out to be a place of primary importance in the development of Irish civilization. It does. And, you know, it was the, the land was and is considered to be among the most fertile in the world. Um, the river's navigability attracted people um, to um, settle here. It lent, it lent that navigability lent itself to trade and therefore this huge civilization um, that gave us the likes of Newgrange in the Neolithic, Tara in the Iron Age, Trim Castle in, the, in medieval times grows up and it remains an important area, area today. Um, but the modern well uh, at Carberry that is associated with the myth uh, is called the Trinity Well. We went over there for a drive last year and it's quite a nice spot. But I was thinking that, you know, 
when all this quarantine and everything is done some of you might like to take a drive along the course of the Boyne and um, maybe I'll, tr- I'll throw up in the show notes a nice um, route you might take um, for the future and hopefully it won't be too long. But Bowen is a divine figure, a uh, divine feminine figure. He has a role in creating the geography of our world. And there are other river goddesses that I think it's really important that we mention in this episode. Uh, some of them have similar stories. And this is, you know, we, we've talked a bit earlier on about the overlap. So there's another story of Shannon who gives her name to the river Shannon. And this story also features a well, but it's a Connell as well this time. And this is situated under the sea. Now, like the well of Segus, it's also surrounded by these magical hazel trees and they drop their nuts into the well and from these nuts bubbles are formed and then the bubbles make their way to the surface and one day Shannon sees them in the river and she's captivated by their beauty and mystery and, and she goes chasing them and drowns, of course. Uh, and because of this, the Shannon uh, gets her name. So like uh, like Bowen and the Shannon, um, there is another figure who we should mention called Ancolioch, or Colioch Vera, um, a divine feminine creator. And she's not unlike uh, Bowen and Shannon. She's not depicted as this you know beautiful maiden. Uh, she's depicted as a crone and a giant at that. So and and also actually a different thing. She's not associated with just like one single place. She's associated with geographical features all over Ireland, um, as well as Scotland and the Isle of Man. So anywhere where Old Irish was spoken, you get uh connections between Ancolioch, the witch, um, and the land around the place. And of course, she's she's got a very strong association with um Lochru, uh, which like Newgrange hosts a, a passage what's known as a passage grave one of these neolithic monuments and unlike newgrange it doesn't have an alignment with the winter solstice but it does with the vernal equinoxes so at the spring equinox and at the autumn equinox the sun shines into the passage at cairn t at loch Roo, and the story connecting on kayak with with loch Roo is that she jumped around the hills there she was a a big giant woman jumping around the hills with her stone, with her apron filled with stones. And as the stones fell out of her apron, they formed hills and valleys and all of that. And in the end, she takes one last leap and falls into one of the valleys and I, I believe perishes. But we never, we never see the body, just like Palpatine. But as we mentioned, there are you know stories about on kayak um all over what was the Irish-speaking world. And there is a Scottish story um, about her and like the Bowen tale it involves a well so in the story um, Colliach Ver or Old Hag of the Ridges who is the guardian of a fountain that welled up from the peak of um, Ben Cruachan and her job is to cover the spring with a slab of stone at sundown and then lift it away again at dawn and one night she falls asleep and the well overflows uh, the water rushes down the mountainside, bursts open into a new outlet to the sea uh, through the pass of Brander. And by the time she wakes, the water has flooded the wide strath below and drowned all of the people and the livestock. And the story goes on to say that this is how the River All and Loch All are formed. Uh, and then Ancolioc, uh, God Lover, is turned to stone as punishment for her negligence and sits to this day high on the mountain above the pass of Brander. And there at um, Ben Crookon, 
Ben Croken, um, there is a hydroelectric dam and I was looking this up there the other day and apparently there's a mural depicting this story at Ben Croken, so another place to visit maybe after we all are allowed go places. <laughs> <laughs> when will that happen? Uh, who Remember knows? going to places. Um... She really deserves a whole episode of her own, so we will come back to her at some stage um, at a more appropriate time because she is associated with winter. So when winter comes back to us, maybe we'll have a look at her. Yep, I think so. But uh, for now, that's it for today's show. We'll be back soon. In the meantime, you might like to support the Irish Mythology podcast by signing up to our Patreon. Uh, patrons will get access to some bonus content, extra episodes, and a chance to chat with us directly about any of the content in our shows. Um, in the Irish Mythology podcast, we will be bringing you shows on the great sagas like the Tónbó Cúlnia, that's the cattle raid of Cúlí, featuring characters such as Cúchulainn and Queen Maeve. We will retell stories of how the Irish landscape was formed by gods and mythical beings, creepy tales involving fairies, ghosts and phantom beasts. We'll get to know the gods our ancestors worshipped and with your financial support, we will be able to bring these stories to you. And you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, just Irish Mythology Podcast, um, on Instagram at Irish Mythology and on the World Wide Web at irishmythologypodcast.ie. And of course, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that allows, that includes ratings and you like the show, just go on there and give us a good rating, five stars, please. It helps us reach a wider audience. So... Slán live. Gurmila Milmakov, Agus Slángafol, Gunnar Ian Boher live. See you next time on Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, produced, and presented by Marcus O'Hishkin and Stephanie Hearney. Music is Celtic Warrior by Damiano Baldoni on a Creative Commons Attribution License. All other credits in the show notes.